Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Expert Answers to Common Questions on Response Matters, Transforming the Standard of Care in CML by Mastering Response-Guided Treatment, is developed by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's Dr. Moreau. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Morrow. I'm director of the CML or Chronic Myeloid Leukemia Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And today I'll be answering questions that were asked by clinicians during the recent educational series on the standard of care in CML. So our questions today will focus on four main topics, testing methods, treatment options for CML, resistance and non-adherence, and comorbidities and adverse events. So let's begin. The first topic for today's discussion is current and emerging detection methods. So many questions here, but let's answer a few. And the first might be, should clinicians routinely check for the T315I mutation for newly diagnosed pH-positive CML before prescribing TK therapy? So the answer to this is generally no, because chronic phase CML, is that kind of testing is going to be shrouded by a very high level of B-seriable. And you may have an overwhelming wild-type B-seriable, and you may not be able to detect um, a small clone. We don't necessarily frequently see mutations when this has been done. As a footnote, higher risk, definitely advanced phase, or what we now by the WHO criteria define as very high-risk chronic phase CMO, which has characteristics of blast phase disease, patients with clonal evolution, maybe lymphoid blast clones by evidence by flow cytometry, those types of patients we may want to do more extensive testing because T315I mutation may be more prevalent, for example, in blast phase disease, lymphoid blast phase disease, and certainly requires different treatment. It is only sensitive to uh, panantinib and assimilative therapy with regards to TKI. So there we go. Another question, are patients having baseline cardiac evaluation completed prior to beginning treatment for CML? Again, another very good question. And I would say in general that you know your typical CML patient is likely to have comorbidities. Some studies in looking at thousands of patients have shown that Typical newly diagnosed CML has 50% of patients have significant comorbidities. So we definitely need to assess them and understand their status and make sure they're optimally treated. And it clearly impacts treatment decision. Some of the second-generation TKIs, for example, such as nilotinib, have more risk, more metabolic disease risk, advancing diabetes or elevated blood sugar, shifting cholesterol, and actually triggering vascular disease. So I wouldn't say it's required for every patient, but certainly good general internal medicine standard of care should be applied. And your typical patient may be 50 or 60 uh, years of age or beyond, although some are younger. And many of these patients, if not having been checked in by their primary care physician, need to. And many need cardio-oncology or cardiovascular medicine specialty care. We'll get to that a little bit later in some other questions. So my general answer is yes. They need some baseline evaluation. They don't need specific testing that's complicated or expensive, but we certainly need to know, understand the comorbidities and in certain cases know them in great detail. So let's switch gears and talk about treatment options. Also many questions here. And one was, is anything in the pipeline for transplant or for those who fail panantinib? So transplantation, just as in a word, is still a relevant treatment for CML. It's often cast aside, but I want to just use this opportunity to remind us all that in a patient with low, low risk of transplant-related morbidity mortality, who has highly resistant CML, who remains in chronic phase, it's an opportunity because CML is highly treatable with transplant and the, co the complications are somewhat lower and it's quite amenable to the graft versus leukemia effect. So transplantation needs to be considered in patients who are, say, on third, fourth line therapy who aren't meeting milestones and particularly those of younger age in whom good donors can be identified. 
But let's shift, because this was about treatment options, and discuss what would be relevant in the non-transplant setting. So we now have multiple TKIs approved. We have amantinib as a first generation, nilantinib, desantinib, and basutinib as our second generation inhibitors, panantinib as a de facto third generation inhibitor, and asiminib now as a novel agent, a Mirstolpak inhibitor or STAMP inhibitor. So those really give us a fairly broad array of options. However, intolerance and resistance still develops to multiple lines of therapy. So we continue to develop new TKIs in CML, and we have to remember about transplant, and those would be the take-home messages for that question. Another question in this area was, why would a physician prescribe first-line basutinib for high-risk chronic face CML over desantinib or nilantinib? I thought this would be a good opportunity to, to highlight the fact that basutinib is, is actually a very good drug. It's quite safe. If you look at comparative safety data from its early phase one, two, and three trials, it was favorable. It doesn't have a particularly severe adverse event profile. It does have specific adverse events such as gastrointestinal and hepatic complications, transaminase elevation, early onset of diarrhea that needs to be actively managed. There are some suggestions, not guidelines in the label, but perhaps the option to ramp up the dose potentially. But basutinib as a second-generation inhibitor you know, had clear data that it was better than amandib in randomized trials and is recommended by guidelines for high-risk disease or higher-risk disease. And for the, you know, for the right patient, if those early adverse events can be avoided or overcome, it may be a very safe and very well-tolerated drug. So I would not shy away from thinking of basutinib as a frontline or definitely as a, a very confident alternative in early therapy. We know that comparative data compared to asiminib in the third line, it was a bit harder to uh, tolerate and was less efficacious. Asiminib really was the preferred agent in the third line setting in the assemble trial. So I think, you know, its place is evolving, but it certainly has a role still. Another question in the same category, what is the role of the oncology pharmacist in discussing CML treatment options with patients before and during treatment? Well, I'm lucky. I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering. We have a very active oncology pharmacy group. And I'll say that if you have access to oncology pharmacy talent, or you have at least ability to reach out to them, the key questions you would see as their role would be to review concomitant medications and drug interactions, which are often many and often very important. One notable one would be proton pump inhibitors or ACE2 blockers and, and their interactions with, for example, desantinib. The other important area that they can often be knowledgeable in is in non-traditional or non-prescribed supplements and non-traditional medications. There are a number that have significant interactions and potential negative impacts. And, you know, it's a world where many patients are seeking alternative therapeutics or alternative means to improve symptoms or manage symptoms. So, so I think CBD is another great example. That has a significant interaction with TKIs, and we have to avoid that. So there's definitely work to be done in that area, and the oncology pharmacist can be quite a crucial team member. Okay, third area. Let's move on to the next topic, which is resistance and non-adherence. What are the foremost challenges for patients who are resistant or intolerant to TKIs? I would say probably I would look at that question itself and say that that is a common co-occurrence. We often see resistance and intolerance that are hard to separate. And if you think about it, they really are somewhat inseparable. A patient, if they're intolerant to therapy, is maybe less adherent, less able to take a therapeutic dose. And that often begets some degree of resistance or even loss of response. We know that from important studies about adherence, which was another question in this section, that if patients miss more than three doses a month, they are likely to potentially face diminishing rates of deep remission and stability of deep remission. So managing the intolerance or the adverse events is the primary challenge, I think, in addition to recognizing resistance and properly categorizing resistance. 
And I think our task is to make sure we do not miss milestones. We monitor patients on time. There's been some studies which have unfortunately showed us that even in research settings, molecular testing isn't always performed. Cytogenetic testing is not performed. And patients need this feedback and guidelines are not that complicated to follow. The CMO patient is not the difficult one in the practice. They're the one we have to be, um, we have a lot of housekeeping. We have to make sure that their adverse events are being addressed and discussed and managed that they're adherent to therapy at a high rate, and that their testing is done in a timely fashion and reviewed and managed. Okay, so the final topic would be comorbidities and adverse events, which we just sort of opened up that Pandora's box. But a few questions here. One was, who is responsible for managing blood lipid increases and hypertension related to treatment with TKIs? Primary care, cardiology, oncology. I think that's a discussion. There is clearly an emerging specialty of cardio-oncology in the U.S. and, and abroad, which can really be important. They are very precise in their ability to craft a monitoring plan for a patient who has cardiovascular disease, make sure their disease outside of CML is fully assessed. And let me just say that it's not that we have a separate agenda for the CML patient who has heart disease or cardiovascular disease or they need X, Y, or Z. You just need the best cardiovascular care that a patient would have irrespective of their CML. And that's sometimes a challenge because they're always in the oncologist's office and Toughen the thought that, well, aren't you doing everything? Aren't you checking my blood and you're seeing me? And can't you just prescribe my blood pressure and my thyroid? And I really shy away from that in my own practice. And I need, we need multidisciplinary care for the patient with CML. They need a good primary care physician to quarterback. They need oncology to, of course, cover all the bases related to their CML care. Many need cardiovascular medicine specialist or cardio oncologist. And so I didn't really answer the question to say who should be managing what, but I think it's best in the hands of those that do that best. And in many patients, that may be the cardiologist. And we certainly can't cut out the primary care physician. They really need to be part of the equation. I I would shy away from having the oncologist doing everything unless you feel comfortable and that that is your practice or your standard. Okay, another question in this area. What steps or resources do I have in place or do do we have in place for assessment of patient indication regarding drug interactions and side effects, knowing that patients have a lot of, um, you know, other other providers, other prescriptions, and, and other things that they might be taking. Back to my point before about the oncology pharmacist, that may not be your practice or your ability. So, you know, some simple things might be just to um, either through nursing or physician or even just teams in the office, just to make sure you know what things people are taking and not just prescriptions. Say, what are you congesting on a daily basis that's not food? Are you taking supplements, uh, other prescriptions? Have you been prescribed anything new? If you prescribe something new, give us a call so we can advise. You know, certain antibiotics, for example, can prolong the QT interval. And that might be an issue for a patient who's on it on Nalotinib, for example, which can have some QT prolonging effects. Just an example. So um, I don't have any particular steps or resources, but I'm advising people to, to make sure that they have a heads up on the fact that the CMO patient is running a marathon. They have years of therapy, three years minimum, often five plus more, sometimes very long duration of therapy. So we have to keep track and monitor their 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 regimen and, and manage all these issues all at the same time. Okay, one additional question in this space. Um, one of my thoughts on initiating lower doses of TKI or de-escalating the dose to manage toxicity. I think this is an emerging space, so, so stay tuned. Um, we've seen trials, for example, uh, touting the benefits of lower dose tisantinib. We've seen trials lowering the dose of, of, of nilotinib and seeing preserved response and ability to to um, sustain deep remission and even go on to um, uh, treatment-free remission. But I would caution that 
we need to stay within the boundaries. I would start a patient on a full therapeutic dose. I would be willing to lower the dose based on guidelines and adverse events. I think it's a little bit premature for us to be automatically using lower doses without randomized clinical trials or FDA label change. But I think we have to know about dose reductions and consider them. And the other area that's robust for potential future research is rather than the uh, cold turkey approach of treatment-free remission, many patients ask about de-escalation prior to discontinuation. There was a nice study from the UK called the DESTINY trial, which looked at that and showed that there may be some merits there. So I think we have to work on that question too. Okay, so with that, we'll end today's session. And I wanted to thank our audience for listening in, for your attention, and good day to all. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.